continue in 1 John. Remember 1 John? It was last year, I think a week or so, a couple, about the first, second week in December, we um, left uh, the Apostle John there in 1 John, and we're going to begin, pick that back up in uh, chapter 3, and we're going to begin looking at that. Reminder that uh, 1 John, written by the Apostle John, uh, is a book that's subtitled that uh, I've called the series is without a doubt because the uh, theme of uh, 1 John is to give the believers assurance of their salvation, to give them confidence of their faith in Christ. Uh, the theme verse, if you want to call it that, is in 1 John chapter 5. Uh, it'll be on the screen there. And this is the kind of, if you had to pick a theme verse out of the book, uh, John says, I write these things to you who believe. So he's writing to believers. First John is written to Christians. That's why it's important to kind of know the context of something. So he says, I'm writing these things to you who are Christians in the name of the Son of God. And here's the reason, that you may know that you have eternal life. A lot of Christians, maybe some of you, I know I do from time to time, and, and you just have to go back to the Word. You uh, at times struggle with assurance. Am I a Christian? Am I really a, a Christian? Has God really saved me? And if we uh, always based it upon how we felt, how many of you know that's kind of like a roller coaster, right? But we base it upon what the Word of God says. That's why we're anchored to Scripture. We're anchored to what the Word of God says about what Christ has done. And John is writing this uh, wonderful uh, letter that we call 1 John to distinguish it from the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, he's primarily written as a, as a tract to unbelievers to show that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But in 1 John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, shorter books, those are written to Christians. They're letters the Apostle John is writing to the churches that he is uh, overseeing there. And so he's writing about the assurance of our salvation. So we're going to pick up uh, in chapter 3 where we left off back in December. And we're going to just kind of work our way and continue here. And one of the ways that John the Apostle gives assurance to believers uh, as we pick it up in chapter 3 is to remind them and to remind us of God's special love that he has towards us, his people, his, believe, his, his children, his family. Do you ever get tired of somebody telling you, I love you? Does that just, you ever just get tired of hearing that? I don't, right? I don't get tired of hearing that. And we never get tired of just having that reassurance of, of love from a person. And then, you know, all of us experienced it at various times when someone uh, has, has stopped loving us, when we've experienced that rejection, and that can be devastating. One of the great motivators that in our life, just on a human level, is the love that we have just as human beings, as people, the common grace, you could call it that way, but even more so in the family of God, the love that we have. Amazing thing of how God has put his church together, probably way different than you and I might have done it. He took people from every different race, tribe, economic situation. I mean, you name it. White collar, blue collar, ring around the collar, everything in between. He's put us together, and he's given us a commonality in his family. 
And where we might have had uh, uh, anxiety or tension or even uh, hatred towards somebody because of one thing or another, uh, you know, that God has brought us together in Christ and has created this family of God that is called the church. It's a wonderful thing. And one of the hallmarks of God's church should be, hello, should be our love for one another. How will they know that you're my disciples? Because of your love for one another. And sometimes in our culture today, that seems to be strained because we base our sometimes our affection and love upon temporary things, politics and opinions and all those things, instead of who we are is the family of God in Christ. And so the world talks a lot about love. I looked it up, and I don't think it's e- there's any way that you could count this. Uh, Billboard magazine had a rough uh, idea, but which is just, I probably could have come up with this number, that they estimate over 100 million songs have been written about love. I'm sure there's at least that. Imagine songs and poems and all those things. The world talks about a lot about love. Uh, You know, the world has... uh, uh, a lot to say about whether you love Burger King or you love a person. And, you know, love just kind of loses its significance. But as wonderful as human relationships and your love of hamburgers may be, they pale in significance of the love that God has given to us. And that's what we want to look at today. And although human love is wonderful, God's love is far greater. Even though this is not part of our First John I couldn't help but think of Ephesians. It'll be on the screen, just uh, make a note of it. But Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend, that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is, look at this, what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That even uh, Paul says that to comprehend the love of God surpasses our ability to totally understand the love of God. But we have some things that God has given us in his word. And this morning we want to talk about the wonderful love of God that is in Christ. Now, you know, Apostle John, as I said earlier, he is the author of this letter. And when you think about John, he was one of the, not only was he one of the 12 disciples, but he was also really kind of had a, uh, was kind of on the inner circle of relationship with Jesus. Peter, James, John, they seem to be kind of the inner circle that Jesus often uh, took those three individuals and they kind of uh, experienced other things about Jesus' life. And John had spent three years as one of these closest inner circle disciples of Jesus. Um, John uh, had seen uh, probably hundreds, maybe thousands of miracles. He was there. 
He witnessed uh, when Jesus was transfigured in glory on the mountain of trans, you know, when Jesus uh, uh, revealed his uh, glory. And remember, he was up there and he was conversing with uh, Moses and Elijah. And remember, that's when Peter says, hey, we ought to start a church up here. You know, he wanted to kind of do that thing. And uh, John saw all that. He witnessed the resurrection. But look at this. Here he is when he writes First John. He's an old man. He's an old man. And if we could ask him, John, of all the millions of things that you have seen, that you have heard, that you've experienced, what motivates you? What motivates you and gives you hope? And I think in 1 John chapter 3, we're just going to look at the first verse and read it with me. It's on the screen. John writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. But I just want you to look this morning at the first part of that. Now, in weeks to come, we're going to spend more time in 1 John 3 and unpack more there. But just this morning, as we just kind of prepare our hearts and minds to receive from the Lord's table in just a moment, uh, this is a great way to just help us to calibrate, to help us calibrate on the wonderful love of God. Because when we gather and we participate in the Lord's table, communion, that we are celebrating as members of God's family that God has made worthy in Christ to dine at His table, right? That isn't anything we've done. That's something God has done. And uh, this morning as we, as we focus on that and look at this verse, I want you just to briefly notice this morning three truths of this Father's love, our Father's love, the wonderful love of God in preparing our hearts this morning to receive from the Lord's table. Three aspects of the Father's love that I want to note this morning. The first is the Father's love is profound. The Father's love is is profound. The Father's great love is profound, and as Christians, it should continually amaze us. You know, we talk about amazing grace, how sweet the sound, and we can sing that kind of mindlessly, can't we? You know, Wednesday night, Al Mohler, who was doing uh, some of the teaching on the Lord's Prayer and introducing that, this past Wednesday, talked about when he learned to drive and how it wasn't too long before he could drive to work and didn't actually remember going over bridges and turns and all that. He just, because his mind was somewhere else. You ever done that? And, it, you know, really, if you think about it, it's kind of scary. You know, you go across the, uh, what's that crazy bridge? And uh, Is it the, huh? The big, the, the one that, yeah, sunshine, you know, because you, you're so close to the sun, right? Uh, but you don't even remember. Now, that I think you'd remember. But anyway, uh, but, you know, but the amazing grace of God is something that should continually amaze us. It should never be. And really, you know, where really the test of this is, maybe for me, maybe for you too, is in worship. I think oftentimes where people struggle in worship, even in worship, that is not singing about God, but it's singing to God. You realize there's a difference, right? 
Christians can sing a lot about God and be a million miles away from God. We call that intimacy. And I think sometimes people who complain, not all the time, and I'm not, this is just a general thought, but, but sometimes what I think is where sometimes people get a little uncomfortable in worship is because they're singing to God in a way that, that is, 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 a, is personal. We're, 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 we're relating to Him. We're not just singing about, you know, a mighty fortress is our God. And those are great hymns. You know, I love hymns, right? But we're singing in a way that's personal. And, and if we can, just like in a human relationship, that can just, we can say the words, I love you, but there's just something missing there. There's no, it's not amazing to us. There's not that, 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 that part and there's the excitement that we had. Uh, and so grace, the grace of God. Look at what John says in verse 3, if you could go back to that. It said, this father's love is profound. It says, see what kind of love. The ESV uses the word see. The uh, New King James says, behold. Uh, it's an exclamation. It's a command. It's, it's John's exclamation point that the Father's great love should be something that amazes us. It's profound. Even at this late age that John is writing, it still amazes him when he thinks and contemplates about the grace of God. And it's the kind of experience that should go stronger and stronger and stronger. One of the saddest things is to speak to somebody who has, you know, been a Christian for many years. And they're, they're just, there's a dullness and there's a ho-humness and there's just a routineness of their Christian life. Man, the, the older I get, I hope that my amazement of God's grace and His love becomes more vibrant as I get older. Not duller, right? Not just kind of, oh yeah, I've been there, done that, heard that, been there, got books on that, yeah, I've heard that. Listen, I don't know about you, but I find that the more <laughs> that I read my Bible, the more I contemplate God, the less I realize I really know how much more I need to grow. It should be something that consumes our thoughts, controls our behavior. It should motivate us to want to love God by serving God and to live holy lives. It should, uh, it should comfort us in our, in our trials, in our seasons that, that, uh, of difficulty, the love of God. One of the things that brings despair and, and discouragement is a lack of hope. And when I remind myself of how much God loves me, that God gave His Son, Christ Jesus, for me, not when I was at my best, but when I was at my worst. When I think about God's commitment of His Son and His life, I can sing the song, Amazing Love, How Can It Be That Thou, My God, Should Die For Me? Is God's love still amazing? But see that word there in the ESV, uh, back in verse, there, there in verse 1? He says, see. That's a command. That's what we call in Scripture an imperative. That's a command. That means think about it, ponder it, look at the significance of it. The, uh, if you read the book of Psalms, there's a word very similar. 
uh, called Selah. just means stop, ponder, meditate, think, contemplate, uh, reflect. In the ESV, it says, how great, see how great this love is. What kind of love that God has given us. Where does it come from? It comes from God. It doesn't come from ourselves. Remember Jesus, when he was talking about peace, he says, my peace I give you. But then he distinguishes, remember? He says, now my peace is not as the world gives. And you could almost say in the same way, because where there's the peace of Christ, there's the love of Christ, that my love is not as the world gives. How does the world give? It gives, you know, there's various words for love in the Greek. There's philos, you know, we get the word Philadelphia, city of brotherly, brotherly love. That's the common love we have, the affection, friendship, love. There is eros, we, erotic, that's a sexual, sensual love. There is agape, that's the God kind of love. That's the love that gives without expecting anything back. We need to love as God loves with one another, don't we? And so that love is from God. And of course, without elaborating on it, but it's worth noting how Jesus, in one of his warnings to the church at Ephesus, warns a great church that was noted for their uh, fidelity of the word and standing firm on truth and Man, they were doctrinally sound, and they, man, they, they crossed their T's and dotted their I's. But Jesus said something in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. He says, I have this one thing against you. You have forsaken, what? The love that you had at first. Is it possible? Is it possible that we can be so doctrinally sound We can be so self-assured. We can be so protective in our our fencing of and protecting the church and the word of God and truth. And all of that should never be minimized. But if somehow we've done that at the expense of love of God. You see, those of you who love, love reading books on the, you know, the deeper things of God and theology, if it doesn't produce more love of God and more love for his people, stop reading it. Do something, you know, because that's not the intent. That's not the intent to just have big heads. Big heads that know a lot about God, but according to what could happen here in Ephesus, you can know a lot about God, but not really know God. I mean, those people that Jesus refers to in Matthew 7, who says there will be those that say to me on that day at the Bema seat, the final judgment, Lord, Lord. And what did Jesus will say? I never knew you. That knowing is a word that's used in an intimacy. I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. It wasn't that in my omniscience, I didn't know you. No, there was not a knowing. There was not a relationship there. That always, yeah, I tell you, that's a very sobering verse and passage in Matthew 7 that shows you that self-deception can take you deceived into eternity. Here they are before the judgment seat of Christ, and what are they doing? They're waving their spiritual resumes. Lord, Lord, don't you remember? 
We did all these things in your name. Prophesied, cast out demons. Don't lose your first love. Secondly, not only is the Father's love profound, but we're minded in 1 John 3, 1, that this great, the Father's great love is provided. The Father's love is provided. The Father's great love has been lavishly given to us. It is something that has been presented to us. It's a present. It's, it's a gift. When somebody gives you a gift, do you reach for your wallet and say, well, how much do I owe you for this? They'd be insulted. No, it's a gift. What do you do? What is the one thing you are required, or the only thing you can do when you get a gift? You just thank you. You receive it. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't, you, you, most, sometimes you don't even deserve it. Look at verse 1. John says, see, profound, what kind of love. But here's the provided, the second part. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. It's a love that is given to us. The word given points that it's not earned. It's not deserved. That's what we talk, when we talk about grace, grace, that's what grace is. It's God's favor that's undeserved. Paul expressed this in Romans 5. Reading from the NIV, Paul says in Romans 5, you see at just the right time, When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God, but God demonstrates, shows his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 For if while we were God's enemies, you ever thought of yourself before Christ that you were an enemy of God? That's what it says. While we were, past tense, God's enemies, we were reconciled. Reconciled means to bring two broken parts and make it whole. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Paul kind of picks this up in Ephesians 2. But because of his great love for us, talking about the provision of God's great love, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. We were dead. We had to be made alive with Christ. Even while we were, past tense, dead in transgressions, our sins, it is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and positionally seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Do you realize that God has made us as a display? We are God's trophies of his grace. This this is not participation trophies just because you showed up. Something my generation didn't know anything about. This is a trophy. God's, we are God's grace magnified of what a mighty God that God has provided this grace that even the angels look at and cannot even take part of. They they have no part in this, something God has done. And the fact that God's great love is a gift means that you and I can't do anything to earn it. 
We can't do anything to deserve it. As I said, it's a gift. We receive it. You can't vow to pay it back because the cost is infinite. God will not be anybody's debtor. You cannot do anything to earn God's love. The amazing grace is that it is a gift. It is a gift and it is there for the receiving, for the taking. Romans 9, 16 reminds us that it does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but upon what? God's mercy. Thank God for God's provision of His love. But there's a final aspect in verse 1 of chapter 3. The Father's great love is profound. It is provided. But thirdly, the Father's great love is privileged. Privileged. The Father's great love has privileged us to be called His children. Now, Michael over here, who's been a blessing already, you know, he's come to, come to this church for months now. And uh, Bonnie, he, Michael's your nephew, right? Okay, make that connection. And, uh, but Michael's, uh, this, this student room, he's been a big, big part of that and really has blessed the church and some resources and things. And so, Michael, you're a great guy. But I would find it a little weird if you just came to my house and came in and just went right to my fridge and started making a sandwich. I mean, you, you know, I'll just say you're welcome to do that if you want. But that would be a little weird, right? Be a little, you know, if you came to Don and Lisa's house and like, okay, I, I've seen him in church, but man, he just, he feels right at home. He's coming and making a sandwich and he ate Don's last piece of bologna and, you know, he's just, he's helping himself. But that would not be weird in my house if it was one of my children. Right? They don't even have to ask, and usually they don't. Because there is a privilege they have, and your children have, by virtue of relationship. You with me? There's a privilege. Now, that privilege wasn't something that, and we're going to talk about this next week a little more, but that wasn't a privilege that just always existed. That's a privilege that God has bestowed upon us. The Bible uses a word, and you know, there's lots of words that we learn as kids in our vocabulary, and there's words in Christianity as Christians we should, we should have in our vocabulary and understand things like justification, regeneration, sanctification, right? And then there's a word that is really important, and that's the word called adoption. The biblical truth of being adopted in God's family. Many of you have adopted children. You or yourself are adopted. So in, a, in one sense, you understand that. We're going to talk about adoption as the children of God next week. But notice this privilege. We see it in, back in our, in our text in verse 1 where it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called, what? Children of God. And I like that the uh, more current versions, like the ESV, the King James omits it, and it's, it's just a lot of reasons. But anyway, I like that the NIV, ESV, and more you know, current versions with more updated uh, understanding of the passages, they add, or, or the te original text says, and so we are. Just kind of like an underscore. 
That we are the children of God, and so we are. In fact, the NIV says that is what we are right now. Not we are hoping to become the children of God, but we are the children of God. We have become the children of God. There was a day that we were not the children of God. We're going to talk about it because there's confusion. We talk about we're all God's children. Well, if you mean that in one sense God is the creator of all In one sense, I wouldn't use the word children, but he is the creator of all. But children implies relationship, that he is our father. Jesus distinguished that. You remember when he had a conversation with the Pharisees? Really, it wasn't a conversation. It was more of a confrontation, maybe. Remember he said, if you you would know who I was, you would know that I, who my identity was, but you are of your father, the devil. You're not of my father. And the word of God distinguishes that. Yes, we are all creatures made in the image of God, but we are not all the children of God. We're going to talk about that next week and help understand that a little bit. But this, is a, this love is privileged. Now, in working on uh, the sermon for next week, uh, I'm going to use this quote, but I just thought it would fit in really good here. Some of you are familiar with who J.I. Packer is and has written that wonderful book. If you only read one book this year, and that's a serious book about uh, uh, understanding God, read Knowing God by J.I. Packer. He's with the Lord now, died, I think, about a year ago. But listen to this quote that he uses. He says, He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his or her father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and their whole outlook on life, It means that he or she does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father, quote-unquote, Father is the Christian name for God. The Wednesday night, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus, his disciples said, Jesus, teach us to pray. They just heard him praying. If you read Luke, he had just finished praying. And it was like, hey, we want to pray like that. Now, they were Jews. They had... They had equated prayer with prayers of reciting great portions of the Psalms or the Torah, the first five books, okay? But they said, we don't know how to pray like that. And he said, pray in this way. And what was the first thing? He said, our Father. He didn't say, now, he's my, no, he said, our our." our. See, that puts us on a different We're not just praying to God as this great separate one and he is transcendent and holy and on a throne and majestic. But Jesus just radicalized their concept of God by referring to Yahweh. And no Jew would dare refer to him as my father. That was way, way too intimate and casual. But Jesus says, pray in this way, our father who art in heaven. It was a, what's he saying? It's a privilege. It's a privilege we have as God's children. 
And again, this comes back to something God has done for us. This is what the gospel is. That through his power, through God's sovereign power, he has taken, as we sang earlier, this dead man and brought us to life. We weren't flailing away out in the great vast ocean of sin waiting for the gospel lifeline. We were dead corpses on the bottom of the floor of the ocean. We had to have Jesus rescue us, give us life, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. We had to be taken from what was dead and be, to be made alive. And so this is the power of, the, of what God has done and make, enabling us to be born again through His Spirit. This is what the Bible talks about, regeneration. It imparts new life to us, and we're raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. It means that becoming a believer is not just a matter of willpower. Yeah, in the mystery of God, there's, there, you know, we, we, we do choose, but the power to choose, I mean, there's, there's great mystery there. We're not robots. We're not automatons, you know, but, but God's, before we can begin to do that, God does something previously. You with me? Look at how John, the apostle, same author, in the gospel of John, listen to how he words this in chapter 1, okay? It's be a good time to open your eyes. Yet to all, I was just kidding there, yet to all who did not receive him, look at these words, yet to all who did receive him, to everyone who received him, to those who believed in his name, look at this, he Gave, that's provided, the right to become what? The children of God. He did this. But look at verse 13. Children not born of natural descent. You see, the Jews held that because of their ethnicity and being children of Abraham, they had a special status. And in one sense, they do, but not in regards to salvation. You with me? Not of natural descent, nor of human, what? Decision. Or a husband's will. But born of God. God did this. God has privileged us. I never really understood the love of a father until that moment around 2.09 p.m. on January 19th, 1991, 30 years ago, my 30-year-old son and held my firstborn and thought, I don't really even understand this love, but I will attack and maim whoever hurts this person, right? You, how many of you know that's a dad thing, maybe? No? I think women be more dangerous. I think, now, I mean, maybe they, you know, women actually, mom, you don't mess with mama bears, right? They're going to come after you. Mama bears will probably plan it out better. Dads will just, you know, impulsively do it, right? But that love of, that love of my child. And then, I don't know if you ever, if you had more than one child. Do you ever worry about how could I love the second one or third, you know, and yet, it, you can't explain it. But 
God's love is even greater than this. And here's what's so wonderful. My love and your love, it's kind of fickle sometimes, right? Sometimes we get, you know, just a little moody, right? God is not fickle. He's never moody. It's never, you know, like a little flower loves me, loves me not. Some Christians, that's their mentality of their relationship with the Lord. That God loves them one day because they didn't cuss or watch R-rated movies on Monday. But then God is mad at them and angry at them because they were just, you know, did all some bad stuff on Tuesday. And then they got to get back into good graces of God. And it's just always this seesaw. God's love is profound. And so profound... I love Romans 8. In fact, at some point, I, I just want to do a series on Romans 8. But look at Romans 8. Who shall separate us? It's like Paul says, I want, I want you to write their name down. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Then he names some names. Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or pandemic. He says, for I am convinced. Guys, we need to get convinced. We're st- the jury's still out with some of you. You're not convinced. Paul says, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father's love is profound, it's great, it's provided, it's a gift, and it is privileged. I am a child of God. Several years ago, I read where John MacArthur, many years ago, uh, had the opportunity to uh, do some speaking engagements, and it involved traveling with the Gaithers. You know, uh, Bill and Gloria Gaither, one of the greatest Christian songwriters of our lifetime, probably, and at least of the 20th century. And at one point, John MacArthur asked Bill Gaither uh, in, that in his estimation... What, in his estimation, as this genius of Christian music, what did he consider to be the greatest Christian lyrics ever written, of course, beside the Psalms or something, you know, in the Bible, uh, the greatest Christian lyrics that were ever written? And and Bill Gaither, without hesitation, uh, immediately began quoting the words from the hymn by F.H. Lehman, The Love of God. Now, I'm going to just show you the words, and then as I'm doing them, I have Teresa and Sherry come on up, and Lynette, I think, also, and they're going to sing that, and you can join with them. So don't be watching them, paying attention to them. Look at the screen. Look at these, the lyrics of this hymn. Look at that first. It says, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. 
It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from sin. And the little chor- the chorus says, O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Now I want to read you the third stanza. We're going to sing this, but I want to read you something about that third stanza. That third stanza, in fact, go ahead and put it up. Third stanza, which says, Could we with ink, could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, a pen, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Let me tell you something about that third stanza. That third stanza that MacArthur in his book called The Love of God writes was part of an ancient lengthy poem originally composed in Arabic in the year 1096 by a Jewish songwriter, Rabbi Meir, who was living in Germany, interestingly. The lines were found, listen to this, the lines were found in revised form on the walls of a patient's room in an insane, insane, insane asylum after his death. On the wall. The author of the hymn heard these words cited, Mr. Lehman, who wrote The Love of God, he heard these words recited at a camp meeting revival, and he wrote them down. God later gave him the words of the first two stanzas in the chorus, which his daughter put to music. But these words, found on a walls of, of an insane asylum, all they, you may feel like you're in an insane asylum sometimes. But it's the love of God that keeps you sane. Right? It's the love of God that never changes. <coughs> never changes, as Paul said in Romans 8. So you can just remain seated. And uh, I'm going to let them go ahead and sing that. And I'll come back up and guide us through.